Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org. Good morning. I am excited about today. Uh, it's an honor. This is my first time ever getting to share with on a Father's Day, and I am honored. Uh, to me, one of my greatest privileges in life and, and greatest gift is to be a father. Uh, there's just nothing like it. So I want to continue. A couple weeks ago, I think, or several weeks ago, I, I, I spoke on the family. And, and to be honest, I've been talking about family for over a year now, just the family of God, the kingdom design for family. And uh, so I want to continue that today and the same theme that we did a couple weeks ago of the design. We went into the design of the family and we went to Genesis and we, we just pulled up the original design of what the family was intended to look like. And today I want to do the same thing for fathers, for men. Uh, at first I kept trying to make myself tailor this message so that it would fit just any man or whatever, but the Holy Spirit reminded me that today is Father's Day. So I'm not going to apologize for dealing mainly with fathers today. But these are some principles that, as a man, you need, whether you're a father or not. Uh, my prayer today is that, that, that my youth, that my age won't cause you to turn me off or to not listen because I've only been a father for six years. Uh, but what I have learned through this process is that uh, I have, especially now that I have a two-year-old daughter, I've, I'm learning that we have to learn to father each child uniquely. There's, there, there's, a, there's a problem with a cookie-cutter approach to fathering our children. And we expect to just father them all exactly the same and get all the same responses. But in reality, we have to be willing as fathers to invest enough time and attention into our children to see how they are designed to be fathered. To say that there's a cookie-cutter approach would to say that our Father in Heaven fathers us all identically. Why would he create us so differently and so, new ye- so unique if that was the goal? So I've been trying to learn this in my own process, and, and we even had the privilege of, of gaining uh, full custody of a 16-year-old. And in that process, I began to learn that I couldn't father him the same way I was fathering at the time my 4-year-old. That there was a uniqueness. And I believe as fathers, we need to remember that their unique individuality merits a unique relationship. It merits us spending the time to figure this out and to do it how it's meant to be done for them, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that I'm a different person to to each kid. It means that my relationship with them is unique according to that child. Are y'all with me? If we're being honest, the thought of a unique relationship with our kids almost seems foreign. As a matter of fact, in the world we live in today, a father having a relationship with their kid at all seems foreign. And I'm not talking about fathers who are not at home. I'm talking about fathers who are still with the child's mother and they are still present in their lives, but they are not in relationship with their children. Man, this is good. This morning as I was just preparing and reading, God reminded me of a scripture and I just went to searching to find this out and and even when I found it, I didn't know where it was supposed to go with today, and I didn't know why he was really giving it to me. But he reminded me of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the last thing God says before 400 years of silence. And in Malachi verse 4, 
I mean, chapter four, verse six. Now, I don't have this on the screen or nothing because this was just last minute. This is the last thing God says. He said, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. We have been in an all out pursuit here at Life Church for revival. We want a revival culture that manifests what God looks like, what God thinks, the way God acts. We just want God manifested within our family, within our community, within this area. And the question has been, what does revival actually look like? Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to believe that revival means we have church for six nights in a row and then we go back to normal life. We took something that was phenomenal and made it pathetic. Can I say that? Is that too harsh? We've called a series of meetings an encounter with God, but encounters with God change everything and leave nothing the same. So if you can go to church 365 days a year, but if you don't encounter him, you cannot change. But I begin to think of this scripture and this morning in prayer, I begin to pray, God, that's what revival looks like. God, this is a facet of revival. That fathers and children are restored back to the way you designed it to work. This is revival. So I believe here at Life Church, I can only speak for this family and for this community. But I believe God is showing us that the revival He is bringing to us is this promise that He is going to restore the relationships of fathers and children. Now, I need you not to be too small-minded this morning and just think about you as a father and you as your, and your child as the, as the son. I need you to think bigger than this. If you are born into the kingdom of God and you are a man, you have been put into the position of a father, whether you have a biological child or not. You have been born into the place of being a father to someone. And so in that, I need you to understand that there has been a great divide between my generation and the generation before me. And there's an even greater divide between the generation before me and the generation behind me. There's such a separation. And today I'm going to show you the downfall of this separation, of why we need fathers to return to the original design and become what God called you to be. Are y'all ready for this? I am excited about this morning. Now, I understand when I talk about relationships with children one of the first responses I've heard and the response that I will probably get is, well, you don't have a teenager yet. And don't talk to me about relationship with your kids till you have a teenager. And if you want to put your faith into that faulted, messed up theology, then you go for it. But I refuse to build my faith upon a secular concept. And the secular world tells me that when my son turns into a teenager, that our relationship will be messed up. But the kingdom of God does not say that. Pastor is doing some awesome teaching on Wednesday nights about the just shall live by faith. So you're going to live by whatever you put faith in. And if you put faith in the idea that your teenager has to twist off and act like an idiot, then guess what? Your teenager will twist off and act like an idiot. Man, this is just too real. But I choose to believe that God is big enough to preserve the relationship I have with my kids. So within this unique approach to being a father, there's some, uh, there some consistencies that we must understand. It's a design or structural aspect that must remain the foundation of everything we do. 
So we are going to go back to Genesis and see the design. In Genesis, when God creates Adam, who we know to be the first human father, he gives him the design. A couple of weeks ago, we, we discovered this design together as a family in Genesis 1.28. And this week, we're going to take it a little further. And we're going to deal with this design specifically as it's geared to us men, us fathers, and how it relates to us being a father. So I believe that if we take these sets of scriptures, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.8 and 15. I'm going to slow down and let you write this down. I'm, I'm a big note taker, so I want to make sure I prepare this where you can take notes. I want to tell y'all something I heard about taking notes, but I don't want to be too harsh this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be nice today. So if we take Genesis 128, Genesis 2, 18 and 15, Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and Genesis 3, Chapter three, verse eight, I believe we can paint a picture of what a dad, of what a man, of what a father was designed to look like. All right. So these are the three uh, aspects, the design that we're going to deal with this morning. Number one, walk with God. Genesis three and eight. Number two, love your wife. Genesis two, 18 through 24. And third, be a good steward. Genesis 2 and 15. These are the concepts that we're going to dive in today. So by design, Adam's children were supposed to grow up watching their dad do these three things. So for a minute, I'm asking you to just imagine before we dive into these three categories, if a community of believers established this culture, that our children were raised only seeing their dad do these three things. Walk with God every day be crazy in love with their mom, and be a good steward of what he had. Would you agree with me that things would change? <laughs> so let's get into the first one. Ready? Genesis 3 and 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And I know this always takes on such a negative connotation, and we use this scripture every time we talk about them messing up. But what I want you to do is for a minute, take off your religious goggles and look at the crazy, insane, beautiful design of God that we can find in this scripture. You ready? And the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can we stop right there? It's no stretch of the mind to think that this was a normal routine, that daily God came and walked with Adam. We know this also because we know that the Bible teaches us God brought everything to Adam. He would bring it to him himself, and Adam would then give that thing identity. So we know that it was a normal concept. It was part of their life. It's no stretch of the mind to understand that Adam was in daily communion walking with God. This is the design. So just, just a side note here. Fathers, men, if you don't have daily communion with God, you're outside of his design. Can we just be that honest? If you're not committing yourself daily to communion with the Father, then you are not the Father you were designed to be. Here's something I want you to understand, and we're going to use some of the New Testament principles of Jesus to prove what I'm talking about as the design. Do you believe that Jesus came to reestablish the original design of the Father? He did. 
So when looking at this, if he came to restore the original design, which he did, then we can look at what Jesus restored and get an idea of what it was originally like. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So I want you to understand this concept. So if Jesus, we know, walked in communion with God every single day, talking to him constantly, he said, I only do what he tells me to do, and I only say what he is saying. We know this is a communion. Then he said, when I leave, I'm going to give you the Spirit of God, which means God with you, that you would have the ability to be in daily communion with our Father. So when you understand that that's what Jesus restored, then you get a better picture of this is what it was like. Adam was walking with him every day, just in communion with the Father. Can you imagine God just coming in the cool of the day and spending time with him. They walked, they talked, they conversated. This was the design. So as a father, our first and foremost priority above everything else, nothing in your life is more important as a father than to be in communion with the father. No matter how successful you may look, Outside of communion with the Father, you are the most unsuccessful Father on the planet. I don't know how else to paint you the picture of how important this is. Outside of communion with Him every day, we have failed as a Father. I don't care how much stuff you provided. I don't care how good the life is. I don't care what all you have. Outside of a relationship with Him... We have failed as a father. Why? Because you will represent the very thing you are most aware of. And if you are not more aware of him than you are of what's here, then you will represent what's here and not represent him. Are you with me? So if we are walking with our father in communion every day, then we are not making ourselves aware of of how he fathers. So by default, we begin to father according to the ones that we are aware of. This is why people will find themselves doing the very things they hated that their parents did because they they haven't made themselves aware of a superior parent. If you're parenting in ways that you wish you weren't, then it's because you haven't been made aware of the greatest parent because you will represent the parent that you're aware of. Man, this is going to be real. Who is that superior parent? Our father. So while walking in communion with the father every day, Adam had the authority to name things. He was appropriating identity to the things around him while walking with the father. As a father, you have the privilege of giving identity to the things around you. The problem is we have been doing this outside of our daily communion with the Father. Without daily communion, we aren't aware of what our Father is calling them, so we end up calling them something that we are aware of. Sometimes we're aware of the current situation that our child is in, so we speak that current situation into them instead of being aware of the promise of God and speaking the promise into them. I'm going to put a crazy responsibility on you as a father today. And you will do one of two things. You will either, like David said, I think it was David, play the man. You'll either step up to the plate and take responsibility or you'll cast the blame on someone before you. 
Okay? So I'm going to put the responsibility on you. I've been taking on this responsibility the whole time I've been studying this and thinking, God, are you sure this is how you want to bring this today? We're supposed to be in here pumping them up and telling them, you're an awesome father and you're doing everything right. But he said, no, I want to show them the design. I want to show them how to be truly successful as a father. So there's a story in Genesis 35 where Rachel gives birth to her last son. We know him as Benjamin. But that almost was not the case. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. During his birth, the Bible tells us that her labor was so long and hard that, it, that Rachel died. And in the moment she was about to die, she named her son Benoni. Because she was aware of the moment she was in, she named him this because Benoni means son of my sorrow. Some parents, some fathers, not parents, some fathers have become so aware of the place that they're in, you're naming your children according to that place. I can't get off track here. Because of what she was aware of, she named him son of my sorrow. So this identity, son of my sorrow, had the potential to govern him for the rest of his life. He would have always been reminded of the sorrow from which he came. Every time he heard his name, he would have thought, my mom died in the process of this, and, and it was all sorrow, and her last thought of me was sorrow, and this child is what caused me to die. That would have been his identity, and everything he did would have stemmed from that place. Everything he accomplished in life would have been stemmed from the place of sorrow, depression, oppression. But here's what's awesome. In this moment, she, she calls him Benoni because she's in so much sorrow and that's what she's aware of at the moment. But Jacob, the father, steps in and says, no, we're going to call him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. So his identity was changed in a moment because of a father that was able to look beyond the current situation and he was aware of the promise of God. See, what we need is fathers who are not distracted by right now. I need some fathers who are man enough to look into the future, who are man enough to look into heaven and say, I know a father who says something different about you and I refuse to call you what culture says about you. The worst thing the church ever did was buy into the Generation X. You remember when that came through and my generation was going, going crazy and running wild and the church bought into it? That's Generation X or that's Generation whatever. And we started declaring the same thing the culture was declaring. So guess what this generation became? Exactly what we called them. Because there was no father to step up and say, you can call him what you want, but I'm going to call him Benjamin. I'm going to call him son of my right hand. I'm going to call him the one that will be successful, the one who will possess the gates of the enemy. I refuse to align myself with culture, and I choose to align myself with the father. We can't afford, fathers, listen to me, men, we can't afford to be saying things that he's not saying. 
There is too much power and too much potential in what you say. And when you speak, things begin to form and things begin to come into existence. I can prove it to you biblically. We're to operate just like our father. And when he speaks, galaxies leap into existence. Well, the same thing happens when you speak. So you better be very careful what you're naming things. Right now, I'm dealing with kids, but some of you have identified your wife. Some of you have identified the culture of your home. Some of you, not some of you, all of you have identified everything around you. And if you hate the way the things around you are, then quit calling them that. I choose to walk with my father. And while walking with him, begin to identify things. To begin to say, no, that's not who they are. I'll tell you who they are. They're Benjamin. Mm. But Jacob, the father, stepped in. When did the fathers stop stepping in? When did the fathers take a back seat? When did we decide the raising the kids thing? That's for the mom. Show it to me in here. Show me where God said the relationship with the child. That's for the mother. I'm too busy being man. No, you're too busy being a coward. Man, I didn't want to say that. Forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. The fathers have disappeared. And it's easy to sit in here and talk about statistics. We do a lot of work in the projects. And on a Wednesday night, on a Wednesday night, I took a count in my class on Wednesday night. And that night, I counted almost 60 students. And I got in front of them and I said, who here has their father living at home with them? Out of nearly 60 students, three of them raised their hand. Three And it's easy for us to sit in here and say, how could they leave them? How could they just leave their kids at home? But what's the difference in a father not being there at all and a father being there but being absent? The identity comes from the father. And too many moms have had to take on the responsibility of identifying their children because fathers don't step up and do it. As if the mom doesn't already have enough on her plate, we've stepped back and said, you make them who they're supposed to be. I made the mistake, mistake and began researching the statistics on children with and without fathers in their lives and quickly realized that the numbers are staggering. It is scary. And I didn't want to go into that direction and I didn't want to bring the mood in here into that place to start telling you about the percentages of people who overdose, commit suicide, or end up in jail of, of the percentages of how, how many of them don't have fathers. It's just, it will blow your mind when you begin to look at this. And it begins to so prove the idea that, the idea that their identity is found in their father. And without that father, they didn't have the right identity. So without the right identity, they just became whatever culture made them. 
but I've refused to go into all those things. But there was one statistic that I, I just couldn't get away from. I had to share with you this morning. In 1999, they took a census of people who believed the child really needed a father in the home. And it came out to be about 93% in favor of it. That was pretty good. 93% said, yes, we, the father needs to be in the home. They took that exact same thing 10 years later. No, nine years later. And in nine years, it dropped from 93 to 82. Now, you may think, that's not a whole lot of difference. But you take that many people and figure out how many people 11% or whatever comes out to. And within just nine years, the mindset had begun to shift already that maybe the father being there is not that big of a deal. And this is what we've bought into. And this is what our, our culture has accepted, that the father being there is not a big deal. Two things. First of all, when you consider it was a census of America of 11% adds up to a lot of people. And second, this is the very problem with the church as we have become too okay with decline. We, it should bother us that this is the way it's going. This is the direction that it's taking. The father plays a huge role in the identity of a child. And I believe we have enough ba biblical backing to say that that was the way God designed it. That is why, number one, walking with God is so important. So important. We, uh, we spent the last three days with, with several young adult couples. This, these last three days, we just went to a camp and put up tents and spent three days together just searching for the marriage that God designed. What is marriage supposed to look like according to the word? And, and, in, and in doing this, we begin to hear people within this group talk about how they're having to start a new culture in their home because they didn't want to take the culture they came from and apply it to their children. And, 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 and in the moment, I begin to realize, where did the fathers lose this? The culture of the home is a reflection of what the father has created there. Father, that, guys, that's our responsibility. We get control of that. I'm going to share something just about me and my wife, and hopefully she'll be okay with it. When we first got married, what you don't realize or what I didn't realize getting married, that when you get married and you move in together, you take on two opposing cultures, <laughs> so to speak. Just two different mindsets. We didn't think the same. We could both look at the same thing and describe it differently. You know what I mean? And when she came in, she came in with a, a, what's the polite way to say this? <laughs> a very negative outlook. Let's put it that way. That was just her care. That was, that was the way she was. And, and I was the exact opposite. To me, the glass is always half full. No matter what, there's always a silver lining and I always see the best in someone. It's, it's, and I can just say thank you to my parents. It's the way I was raised. It's the way I came up. Always be positive. If you're being negative, go be negative somewhere else. That's just the way I was. Well, when we come into the same home, all of a sudden, there's two opposite things here. And you can ask my wife if she's willing to admit it. It finally come down to the place where me, as the, as the man of the house, as the father of the house, had to sit down and say, this is the culture that this house will have. 
We will be positive. We will not see it as half empty. We will not be negative and had to take the culture of my home and change it to what it was supposed to be like. And now when we were riding out to the marriage retreat, we were talking about the doctrine of our home and the culture of our family. And she was saying, how do you even really know what the doctrine of the culture is? I said, look at your kids. And whatever your kids are doing, they're showing you the culture you've created in your home. So we begin to examine Stephen. Well, what does Stephen act like? He's weird as all get out. He gets all that from the short side of the family. (laughs) But we begin to talk about Stephen and how he's always positive. He always wants to make you laugh. He's always trying to see the best in something. I heard his coach, he's on a t-ball team, and he even made the all-star team this year, and we were just so proud of him. But I heard his coach, uh, uh, the head coach, say something about him that made me the most proud. And he said he was starting Stephen where he was at, not just because he was good at the position, even though he was, he did phenomenal. He said, but he's always the one with the best attitude, and he's always making it light for the other players, and he doesn't get mad at himself, and he doesn't get upset with what's going on. And I begin to realize this is the culture that has been created in my home, that he doesn't miss a ball and beat himself up. Usually he makes a joke about it. Do you see what I'm talking about here? The culture that we create in our home, fellas, it's up to us. That's on us. I know it's Father's Day. I got to move on. We want to have, why don't y'all have plenty of time with y'all's fathers today? So let's go on. Point number two, you ready? Love your wife. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. Can I just point out the Captain Obvious moment here? And God caused him to fall asleep, and he slept. Really? Appreciate that, Moses. Thanks for clearing that up for us. (laughs) And where am I at? He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, quit hanging on to your parents. You're married now. Good Lord. (laughs) Says the biggest mama's boy in the house. (laughs) where are we at love your wife recently I heard a preacher say one of the greatest things we could ever do for our children is to let them see us be madly in love with our wives this is going to be good you know us men we really like to go to Ephesians 5 and pull that submit to us you know that scripture I'm talking about we was at the marriage retreat this weekend I couldn't wait I was like you just give me a chance I'm pulling Ephesians 5 so fast submit in the Bible. But we begin to dive into this. And the more I studied it out, I begin to come to the conclusion that really they've got it easier than we do. Let me show you something. Can can I read y'all something out here? And I'm not going to put it there because I'm going to read it out of a different translation. Uh, But in these scriptures, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, where it tells, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. And, and I'm going to move this on because I'm not putting it up there. Wives, submit to your husbands, which really, if you go and break that down, men, it doesn't mean at all what you think it means. It really means to be so tenderly devoted just as they're devoted to Christ. And we'll get into all that some other time. But listen to this. You ready, husbands? What they have to do is just be submissive. Listen to what you got to do. 
Husbands, you are to demonstrate love for your wives the same way, with the same devotion that Christ demonstrates it to us. I'm willing to trade. I'll just do whatever you tell me if I don't have to do that. Can we be honest here? How many of you men would look back right now and say, I love my wife just like Jesus does? Ooh, we just got real, didn't it? Because see, if they learn to be submissive, they've got it. They've fulfilled their part of the job. But if I don't love her just like Jesus loves her, I haven't done my part. See, maybe them being submissive would be a lot easier if you acted like Jesus. Because for some reason in the Bible, women didn't have a problem submitting to Jesus. They would wash his feet. They would cook for him and clean for him and take care of him. And we're beating our wives over the head trying to get them to fold clothes. Maybe if you look like Jesus, she'd fold your shirt. I am preaching to myself. Golly. Woo. Do y'all see what I'm trying to paint here? Do you see the picture that we're painting? See, we've put it all. Well, they're not being submissive. Well, do you look like Jesus? Do you love her like Jesus loves her? Are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to go to the extent that Jesus did to make her everything she's supposed to be? See, we just equate equate that to, yeah, I love her like Jesus. I die for her. Some of them wish you would die for them. It'd probably be easier. But no, what Jesus did was he paid the ultimate price to make the bride everything she could be. See, you're willing to die physically because then you'd be the hero and you'd get all the glory. But you're not willing to lay down and let her rise up and let her be the woman of God that she was called to be. Man. You are to demonstrate love for your wives with the same tender devotion that Christ demonstrated to us. Husbands have the obligation of loving and caring for their wives in the same way that Jesus serves and satisfies us as members of his body. Man, that's real. So we are to love them like Jesus loves them. How does Jesus love them? What does Jesus love look like? I don't know why I didn't put none of these scriptures in this thing. Y'all just got to trust me, all right? What does the love of Jesus look like? Paul was willing to give us an example. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is how Jesus loves them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't get envious. Love does not puff itself up and talk about how important it is and how they need to fold my clothes and wash my floors and do everything for me. Love doesn't talk about that. Love's not puffed up. Love doesn't behave rudely towards them. It never seeks its own profit. It doesn't provoke or think about things that are negative. Love does not rejoice when something bad happens, but it only rejoices and celebrates in the honesty of the truth. It bears all things, believes all things. It endures all all things and it never fails so men next time our mind runs to Ephesians chapter 5 I pray that it runs on over to 1 Corinthians 13 and begins to say if I haven't checked all these off if if I'm not living with this kind of love and I haven't fulfilled my part 
Who am I to say anything about them fulfilling their part? Jesus said, you without any sin, throw the first stone. In other words, you that look like me, you can throw the stone first. Right? Am am I out of line? So husbands, before we start throwing stones or saying things, maybe we should stop and begin to say, am I worthy of holding this right now? Or should I drop it and just walk away? Man, I'm just going to give you a little bit of advice. I know I'm young, but my dad's given me plenty of advice. Majority of the time, you should just drop it and walk away. The greatest marital advice I've ever been given in my life is this. When I was about to get married, and multiple times since I've been married, this is what my dad has told me, and it has been one of the greatest things ever. Choose your battles wisely. If there's no spoils to be gathered, there's no fight to be fought. Right? That's just a side note. You can have that for free. What time is it? Oh, man, we got to move on. This is what's awesome, too. Before I move on, though, I do want to say this because it's something that came out this weekend in our marriage retreat, which was phenomenal. I can't wait for y'all to hear the testimonies from these couples that got to go. Uh, In the Ephesians chapter 5 part where Paul is talking about marriage and what it's supposed to be, he goes on to say that marriage is established by God in the mystery of him to reveal the example of Jesus Christ. Do you catch that? Your child's first example of Jesus Christ is your marriage. So sometimes we wonder why children, as they get older, have a messed up view of Jesus or of God. It's probably because they viewed him through your marriage. And if your marriage was a struggle and a fight and I'm just, I gotta make this thing work, then that's probably what their Christianity is gonna look like. Because he said, and and in this translation I love, he says, it's a vivid example of Jesus Christ and his church. I want my children to come up knowing how Jesus loves us because of how much I love her. I want them to say, man, if he can love more than my dad loves my mom, then he must be amazing. And I can't wait to be in a relationship with him. But what happens is most of the time, the only example of Jesus they see is when you bring them and let them go back there with our children's pastors. Instead of them coming here and seeing things that remind them of your marriage. What if when they were sitting up there hearing our children's pastors declare the love of God over them, they were remembering times that you loved your wife like that? That when we begin to say love is patient, love is kind, love suffers longs, and and, and in their mind, what if they were saying, I can see that because that's exactly how my dad is with my mom. Our marriage is the first example. Last point, you ready? And then we'll go eat and hang out with our dads. Last one is be a good steward, Genesis 2 and 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. I want to kind of look at this from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, but what we see here is God asked Adam to take care of everything that he created and gave to him. It was Adam's job to maintain it, to keep it in order, and to make sure it had everything it needed to remain what God had intended it to be. I need you to catch this. His job was to make sure that it remained everything God intended for it to be. Men, we have to start understanding that we, just like Adam, are called to steward something that God gave us as a gift. 
instead of this whole, it's mine, I earned it. And we lord over things and we take such a, a, a negative ownership of things. But everything you have in your life is just like the Garden of Eden. God designed it, God created it, God planted it, and then he gave it to you and said, now you tend it. You be the steward of it. And we are to make sure it maintains exactly the way God intended for it to be. Whether that's your children, your wife, your home, all these things, it's our job. What I want to make sure we do here is not take the easy way out and just say that as long as we're providing for our families and giving them what they need, then we're being good stewards. Because that seems like the low road. The Greek word in the Bible where we get the word steward is oikonomos, which means an employee that manages a household or a family. So here's the understanding. That employee slash manager is asked to take care of things that are given to him or put under his care. Men, fathers, it would do us good to start seeing everything we have as a gift from our Father that has been given to us to steward. God planted everything in the garden, and Adam had to make sure it remained healthy and continued to grow and reproduce. He had to be fully invested in it. I believe it was Adam's job to make sure that what he had been given was increasing, not just remaining like it was when he got it. I believe I can prove this by a kingdom principle that Jesus taught when he taught on the talents. And he teaches us there was a man who gave his servants 10 talents and five talents and two talents, and he leaves and he comes back. But the faithful servant was not the servant who just kept hold of what he had. As a matter of fact, the one who just left it exactly like it was, God took it from him and gave it to the other one. The faithful servant was the one who caused it to increase the one who caused it to grow. Can you see this picture of Adam in the garden? It says God planted the trees, but Adam had to tend to it. In other words, God planted a seed and there was something there, but it was up to Adam to make sure it grew and produced fruit and then it was planted again and, then, and this process was to take over. Is that how we are operating as fathers in our homes? Are we so walking with God and operating in an area that we're making sure everything is growing and increasing and being exactly what God intended it to be? Or have we left that to the pastor and to our wives and to our Sunday school teachers? And, or men, have we taken on the responsibility that if this thing's not growing, chances are it's my fault. Chances are I haven't stewarded it well. I haven't stewarded it like he intended it for me to. I believe in a way, this, even, this applies to so many aspects of our life, not just our children, but I believe it's in our jobs. It's in our home culture. I believe it's in our finances. I believe some of us cannot be blessed financially by God because we don't know how to steward it. And he's not going to waste anything. He gives seed to the sower. He gives seed to people who know how to sow it, tend to it, manage it, steward it. So we have to be very careful before we judge other people based on where they're at in their life and what we say about them. They may be there because they've learned to steward it well. Father, these are our responsibilities. Men in the house, fathers that are here, this is the design that we are to live by. Walk with God. Daily communion with him. Every single day we need to be walking with him. Because outside of walking with him, we identify things falsely. Number two, be in love with your wife and make sure your kids know it. 
Your children need to know this. You should be so driven by her and her alone that your eyes and your thoughts and everything is for no one else but this woman. Can we talk about this nowadays? Or is this too foreign? Is this too far gone? Man, this weekend in the marriage retreat, we were able to just be so honest and just deal with some stuff, and there was freedom released in that place in those moments. Love your wife. And lastly, be a good steward of the garden that God has placed you in. Make sure it's productive. Make sure it's fruitful. Make sure it's growing. Make sure it's increasing. Make sure you're taking proper care of everything that has been put in your care. To me, I believe, and like I said, I'm young and I haven't been in this long, but I believe by the help of the Holy Spirit, he began to help me see this design and these aspects of a father that can change your life, that can change your home, that can change your culture. And the design is, if the homes change, the church will change. And if the church will change, the community will change. Fathers, I'm going to go out far enough to say most of that responsibility is on us. We've got to step up to the plate. We've got to, like David said, play the man. Be the father. Be the father that they want you to be. Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org.